The key thing there, in my opinion, is the mindset that goes along with knowing that you're going to have that. Because this is why the tie-in to net worth. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals, the show where we will teach you how to grow your wealth passively while keeping your day job but not buying yourself another one with your investments and really building that wealth outside of your work while you get your work done during the week. And today we've got something very exciting. And I'm sitting down with Hunter Thompson from the Cashflow Connections podcast and ASIM Capital. That's a private equity firm based out of LA in California where Hunter lives. And since starting, he's helped over 250 investors allocate their capital into over 100 properties. He's raised over $20 million from passive investors, investing in over $60 million in commercial real estate. He specializes in self-storage syndications, which is an important interest of mine. I I think it's great. I invest in it passively through my uh, self-directed IRA. I think it's a great route to go. Today, we're talking about active versus passive real estate investing and which of those two is better for creating financial independence. And Hunter is uniquely qualified to talk on this topic in addition to his background in investing and do, run his whole company, hosting his podcast. He also debated this topic live on stage earlier this year, 2019, at the Best Ever Real Estate Conference or the Best Ever Conference in Denver, which is hosted by Joe Fairless and a bunch of other guys. So really exciting. I'm especially excited because I missed this, missed that conference this year. I've been in the other ones, but didn't make it to this one. So Anyway, without further ado, Hunter, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, I really appreciate you for having me on. Thanks again. Really excited. And as we get into this, which is your position on the active versus passive? Which is better? So I'll be honest with you. I have focused on the vehicle of passive investing since I understood the structure. So I was very fortunate in the sense that as soon as I understood what a syndication was, as soon as I understood that you can invest in such a way that relies on someone else's time, energy, and expertise and access to capital. I found that so compelling. I built my career around that. So just to be transparent, I don't just sit on the beach and watch the money come in. I built my career on passive investing and facilitating passive investing. But you don't have to build a career around it. In terms of portfolio allocation, I think is incredibly prudent to consider it, at least for a portion of your portfolio for a reason that we'll get in. But I'm overwhelmingly on the side of passive investing, so much so that without trying to move the goalpost in the debate, I basically said in my opening five minutes, I'm a little surprised that this is even a topic of a conversation, despite the fact that most of the people in the audience disagreed with me. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, you and I have, we have similar positions on this, right? If not precisely identical, this is passive wealth strategies. I'm primarily a passive investor. I do active and actively invest as well. But the deals that I actively invest in, I'm primarily just placing my capital in the capital of others. So I believe in the passive side as well. Our discussion, I don't think is going to be a debate. I'm not that good of a devil's advocate on this topic. But uh, (laughs) yeah, I'm definitely interested in hearing about, I don't know, what you learned in the debate and your points in the debate as well. So in getting into passive investments, I mean, could you give the listeners a little bit more of a background? I said a little bit about what you do, but Give us, fill out the background. What do you do with ASIM Capital? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, just a little bit about my personal background. I went all in on financial assets right when 2008 happened. 
So just from a personality standpoint, I felt like there was going to be a tremendous opportunity in financial assets, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, real estate, you name it, just because I had learned a little bit about economics and naturally am very inclined to go left when people are looking right. Especially when I was younger, go left when people are looking right, even if that meant going left before looking myself, just because <laughs> I assume that everyone's wrong. You know what I mean? Just generally speaking. And as you get older, that starts to become more moderated. But at the time, it was incredibly advantageous, right? And so when I really started doing that, though, stocks were the thing that were most applicable or most accessible because that's the thing that has the most marketing behind it. And that's the thing that most people are most familiar with. So I started to invest passively in stocks and had success with that, as most people would starting in 2008 but had a last straw moment in 2010 when the European debt crisis started creating unbelievable volatility in my United States-based investments. And I basically said, after all these books that I've read and all these blog posts and articles I've read by Warren Buffett and all this research I've done, how is it the case that the German bond yields are playing a significant role in my financial well-being? How could I possibly have predicted that or mitigated that risk? And what are we even talking about? And so I basically went on a route trying to find an investment vehicle where either a small family office or an individual person or a small company could actually conduct accurate due diligence to mitigate risk. And as you listeners are most likely not surprised, I was quickly led to real estate just because the relative simplicity of the asset and the asymmetric return that can be generated if you know how to identify great properties. Now, my strong suit was not in identifying great properties, but being dedicated to creating a due diligence process focused on the sponsor themselves. And that's really when I started to you know, have success as a professional and started to build a business and started to scale that business based on that investment thesis. That's awesome. I absolutely agree that the, it's at least with your, what I think you're implying is that the sponsors are a very key part of these deals. And so as passive investors, that's where we need to get started you know, as we're getting into looking at deals. But whether or not we want to go down that path right now, you know, that's a whole other can of bees that, you know, we can open up and talk about. As far as passively investing versus actively investing, when I think about this, I think the common answer that you're going to get if you go talk to real estate entrepreneurs, primarily real estate investors, they're going to tell you, Active investing is the best way to go, and you know, the, and the room that you were in when you were debating this topic were was primarily people who are active investors, who many of whom have obtained some level of financial independence, if not you know complete financial independence, through what would be considered active real estate investing. Whereas for the rest of us, like you said, a, a small single family office or you know someone with few nickels to rub together that's looking to invest and create that financial independence. You know, why is a passive route better than an active route for typical person out there, maybe, you know, high paid professional that has a good job, doesn't want to leave the job, but wants to put, start growing that wealth and eventually be out of the position where they have a job. Why is that the better way to go passive? Well, now that the debate is over, it happened <laughs> and I don't have to worry about those people listening to this or moving the goalpost. I will say that depending on how you define financial freedom, I would make the case that it's actually the only way to achieve financial freedom. So my definition of financial freedom is the mindset that goes along with knowing that all of your future expenses can be paid off without you needing to work. Now, the reason I phrased it like that 
it's I'm kind of towing the line of defining it as being a passive investor because that's really truly how I believe it, what it is, right? So, but the key thing there, in my opinion, is the mindset that goes along with knowing that you're going to have that because this is why the tie into net worth, which is clearly much easier to acquire being an active investor, is not tied to financial freedom because you can have a billion dollar net worth, but if it's all over allocated to one asset class, you can be completely wiped out and therefore constantly worried about that. And therefore your financial freedom, you can be incorrect and know that you're going to, but if that predictability of outcome is reduced to zero because you're over allocated, you have a major problem there. And by the way, this is not uncommon. So the division of labor is like one of the most powerful things in all of economics in order to have an upper hand in business, especially a significant upper hand that's gonna generate you a significant net worth, you have to be hyper-specialized and focused. This is how you get economies of scale. This is how you get relationships and, and everything that goes along with being best in class at one particular thing. But when you're best in class at one particular thing, it's antithetic to financial planning, it's antithetic to diversification, and therefore it's antithetic to predictability of outcomes. You can't know that you're going to be able to pay off those expenses without having that diversification. And just to put a fine point on this, I think the most pronounced version of this is Ike Batista. So Ike Batista was at one point the seventh richest person in the world. And now I think everyone, hopefully listening to this podcast, has a higher net worth than him. Because over the course of about 18 months, he went from seven billion or seven richest person in the world to negative $1 billion net worth. And there you go. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how much better you are, or even if you're a market mover in a major asset class like oil, which turned around drastically, it caused create tremendous financial ruin and put himself in a position that we could easily be avoided even if a third or a tenth of his net worth was invested. The types of you invest, you and I are such a proponent of, that net worth would grow and grow and grow for the next 60 years and, and generational wealth could be easily created from that. It's interesting, you know, the, I think to boil that down maybe a little bit is, you know, part of my interpretation of that, what you're saying is a passive investor is earning a return in your definition through the placement of their own capital exclusively, just through the placement of their own capital, ideally through more of a cash flow vehicle than a price appreciation vehicle like, a you know, commodities or stocks, something like that. Cash flow vehicle like commercial real estate syndications that we do. You're making cash flow. It's not all about price appreciation. Am I reading through the between the lines well on that, or what do you? That's think? certainly part of it. But I'll, I'll put it to a finer point. The key is diversification. So the combination there is that some of your investments should provide that cash flow. Some of your investments should provide the outsized returns from capital appreciation. But if you're over allocated to any strategy, even if you're over allocated to cash flow, that could give you a problem later down the road. Now, I'm a huge proponent of cash flow, but if you're trying to get both the predictability of outcome and the outsized returns, generally speaking, the predictability of outcome comes from the cash flow and the outsized returns come from capital appreciation, meaning forced appreciation. But it's hard to get all of the sectors of a investment portfolio if you're only focused on one particular strategy. Now, I can go into the details as far as why I'm not, even though I'm only focused on the passive approach and why the fact that I do have a market advantage despite being invested in multiple asset classes, we'll save that for later. The point is you can build a portfolio like this 
without being a specialist in everything that you're investing in, still have a market advantage through the leverage of other people's time, energy, and expertise. That's why I'm involved in this business, you know, as well as I get to invest alongside people that are better at organizational operations than I am, better at business intelligence than I am, better at shoot talking to brokers than I am, better at doing all of these activities that, you know, I'm not good at or either I'm not good at or I'm not inter- interested in being good at or I don't have the time to be good at. So that's why I'm in this business. But, you know, you talk about diversification. I guess how do we decide how to diversify? Because the common answer that, you know, the average person is going to get is just buy an index fund. If you want to diversify by the S&P, maybe some kind of bond fund, something like that. As passive investors, why even look at a cash flow slash value add type of real estate opportunity or syndication versus the S&P, you know, over time? Yes. Yeah. Dollar cost average. Yeah. I mean, I would say that for most listeners on this show, you're probably sympathetic to number one, dealing with your family members, asking that question all the time. Number two, <laughs> you're probably compelled by this anyway, but I would do this, honestly, without even doing any data analytics or you mentioned business intelligence or machine learning or anything like that. Just write down what you genuinely think the chances of a loss of principle taking place. Write down the expected outcome of those returns and try to make, it's not an algorithm, it's just looking at it saying, what's the likelihood of this? I'll give you a perfect example. The We're in due diligence right now on a multifamily workforce housing property that is in a market that has historically never been under 80% occupied. The property is currently 92% occupied. The current owner has 100,000 units and is not paying attention to it at all. And the expense ratio is about 62%, meaning that of every dollar that goes in, 62 cents is going to expenses. That's completely out of whack. It should be way less than that. So my point is, the break-even occupancy of this property is below 70%. It's 92% occupied in a market that's never been below 80%. The break-even occupancy is 70%. So when you look at the likelihood of loss of principal on a risk-adjusted basis, it's hard to come up with a way that that could historically – it would be very ahistoric. So why is it compelling? Because if you're looking at things like you should be on a risk-adjusted basis, in the sense that everything is probabilistic, Cash flow generally and niche real estate investments just put themselves far above and beyond. Now, what the other question is, let's say one level deeper than that, is why shouldn't I just do this myself? Look, you're saying self-storage is so compelling. I'm reasonably business savvy. I'm maybe I went to law school and I, I have an upper hand. I have an upper hand just because I can create my own legal documents or something like that. And by the way, many of our investors are extremely business savvy, and many of them are even active owners themselves. But going back to the division of labor, when all you do is own self-storage facilities, let's say you focus specifically on self-storage facilities in Florida, there is a huge difference between owning 20 self-storage facilities and owning 20 single-family houses. When you own 20 self-storage facilities, you have relationships with brokers, relationships with sellers, relationship with lenders, business relationships with nearby universities or truck rental companies or you know economies of scale from insurance providers, just massive, massive advantage that you can bring to the table, so much so that you can make up for the fact that a sponsor may be participating in the interest of that deal. And then things become very fascinating. When you're getting up into these complicated asset classes where a sponsor will stand to gain or lose millions of dollars 
all of a sudden you have someone who is highly incentivized to actually execute for you and the level of sophistication, meaning what they're bringing to the table is extremely pronounced. And like I said, if the return profile is similar and the time component is completely eliminated and the risk of being liable for something that goes wrong at the property level is eliminated, which is the case for passive investors, you're starting to paint a picture of like, why isn't everyone doing this, right? And that's what I started saying in 2011, there's been a massive run up in the popularity of these investments and not because of me, but because of some <laughs> regulatory changes and because access has really increased. Absolutely. And I mean, we don't want everybody to do this anyway. It's, it's more fun if not everybody does it, but I agree totally. with you that, you know, yeah, if you've got, I mean, if you've got 20 single family houses, I mean, I'm not a single family house investor, but if you've got 20 single family houses and a day job, you've got two, if not three jobs essentially just in a you know you have your day job plus all the time you know running that real estate business if you've got management even then you have to manage your managers and you know handle all your bookkeeping and all that stuff and there are ways to run that business like a business but you know for somebody to go with your lawyer example i think of a friend who uh harvard educated lawyer works in dc he works probably anywhere between 80 and 100 hours a week at her job and she makes a lot of money. There's no way does she have the time to buy a single family rental property because she just wouldn't have the time to dedicate to it, let alone, never mind DC being a probably not great market to invest in. In, in cases like that, I can see, you know, I agree that passive investing makes a lot more sense, plus the mitigation of risk. Now, we had a question come in, Bart, I, I'm getting to you here on this question. For passive investors, this is a great question. Or you know the answer, answer Hunter. For passive investors, how can you use leverage? So if you're a typical home, so going for a home example, but the scale of properties that you and I deal with are going to be a couple extra zeros on here. If your typical home is $100,000, you can put down 20% and borrow the remaining 80 from a bank. Therefore, you're controlling $100,000 worth of property with just your $20,000 down and your settlement costs. But as far as for Passive investors and syndications, for example, we can expand this to a syndication using round numbers. How do they use leverage? This is a great question. I was interested to see who, who chimed in because this is actually one of the most compelling things. And I will say the people that we're debating against at the Best Ever Conference, both of them are highly experienced sponsors. And we really got along and we were complimenting each other in terms of the debate that we were bringing forth, but also in terms of you know, our track record in the business. However, there was one moment where things got a little heated, and this is why. <laughs> this is why. And it's because I made the comment, I was making a, a joke about it's that fact that it's um it's just a matter of opinion whether which one's better. And I said, Well, look, it's just a matter of opinion. For me, it's the passive approach. If you want to be diversified, then that's what you do. If the active approach is you want to put all of your eggs in one basket and sign away your firstborn children on a personally guaranteed loan, then the active approach is good for you. And the reason I said that is because as a passive investor, I rely on the sponsor's ability to access credit. So many times, if we're talking about a $25 million loan, I can't get access to that because my track record is not what theirs is and I don't have a balance sheet that what theirs is. Now they may have $25 million liquid in a bank account that they have to show in order to get access to a $25 million loan. And the other, the people that we're debating against mentioned no, these are non-recourse loans, which is a very fair point, except for the fact that why do you think you have to show you have $25 million in there? Because there's clauses where that non-recourse comes recourse. 
And some of those clauses can be things like, in the event of a default, it becomes recourse. Let me restate that. In the event of a default, it's a recourse loan, meaning that the only time it matters, it's a recourse loan. Now, I don't know the details <laughs> of their particular paperwork, but they were very like, you know, it is something that we need to make sure and call our attorney, make sure that's not in our next document. However, my point regarding the access to credit to your question, we rely on the sponsors to do that. And we're not at all involved in this. And so, again, you're getting the ability to leverage their access to a $25 million loan to buy a $50 million property. And now all of a sudden you're an owner in a $50 million property without the liability that goes along with that massive loan. Absolutely. That's the deal I just invested in you know, recently with my IRA. The sponsors, they had to put their name on the loan. And frankly, I'm not sure at this point whether or not it was recourse or non-recourse, but they have to put their signature down saying, I'm going to repay this loan one way yes. or another. And like you said, there's yes, always clauses in there. Exactly. Yes. Not some random LLC like me as a person. I'm going to write this, my name. Yeah. Yes. Their name is on the line, their given name or whatever their legal name is. Whereas right. we as passive investors are just members in an LLC. And for me, it's even further away. It's in my IRA. So it's, it's not my money for another you know 30 years, something like that. So, exactly. You know, and the liability yeah. is limited to your investment amount, right? They will not pursue you above that. You can lose your investment amount. That's one thing. But you're never going to get a bill saying so-and-so has claimed that you made an unsafe work environment for him, and now he's coming after you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing that's important to note is, well, before we get onto that, you know, it's, I think it's important to clarify or, or reinforce what you said. And, you know, the best ever conference is just a good time. Everybody's all friends. It's fine. It's all good. You know, we don't need to bring any names up for the folks that were on the on the stage with you. Oh, no. I'll actually, I don't remember one of them. Another one was Mark Massey. And the reason I'm saying that is they know what they're doing. I mean, they absolutely. really know what they're doing. During the debate, I said, you are absolutely the kind of sponsor that I would want to make a bet on. And your attention to, it's very clear from the conversation. So I don't mean to throw them under the bus. It's more like they're the skilled ones. I'm just the one that's coming to the table with the passive investor approach. <laughs> Mark from uh, Massia Development, great sponsor. Absolutely. Totally agree. Oh, I, yeah, I think another very important point is that many, if not all, I don't know everybody's personal background, but many of these sponsors who are actively investing, when they make a return and they have some capital, they don't just sit on it and they don't just put it all in their own deals. They go and passively invest in other sponsors' deals to part of uh, relationship building, part of diversification, getting into other asset classes. But I think that speaks volumes for the importance or the, the validity, the value of passively investing when you have people who are some of the best active investors in the business doing it today are also passive investors on the side in other people's deals. Oh, yeah, exactly. So the thing that's compelling about that is that and I, by the way, I love dealing with sophisticated investors. That's kind of our brand. Our podcast is extremely dense and we have to answer really tough questions. And most of our investors are investors in multiple asset classes, as opposed to talking to investors that may or be considering investing for the first time, which by the way, nothing makes me more excited to do that because I, I like helping people get money out of the stock market. Now, the question becomes though, if you are a, a sponsor and you have a particular niche and all of your properties are A-class properties in Southern California, and you want exposure to someone who has a national outlook or a look particularly in the Midwest, for example, that's not your area of expertise, but you can leverage the skill set of someone else's focus and their division of labor for your own personal portfolio. 
in my opinion, that's the only way you get the best of both worlds. You get that diversification, but you still have that division of labor, which results in all those great things that I mentioned earlier, economies of scales, relationships, et cetera. Absolutely. So if we could, you know, we're going to take the other spin. I'm going to have to, I'm going to ask you to be fair. What is the counterpoint that the other side could make that you know, active investing is better if that's the position you're taking? Going to steel man their argument. What is the yeah. best point that they could make against what you're saying or what, you know, we're saying because you and I have, are in agreement on this? Sure. And I think it's very reasonable and also something to take note of, which is that it is not the passive approach is not for most people the way to make money, right? But I think that there's a misconception that making money makes you financially free. And that's the first thing that I wanted to address. So if you are a sponsor and you're able to create, oh, I flipped a property, made $300,000 in two years, which is a reasonable thing to do as a sponsor of a high-end property, that's not going to be a story of when you invested $25,000 in a syndication and got a check for 300 grand, especially if it was a cash flowing property. So if your route to financial freedom, it starts where you personally are, right? So if you currently are in pursuit of becoming a accredited investor, for example, you need to create a the path of least resistance to accomplish that goal. And then once you start being able to invest on the side, you're building up the approach. So what I'm really alluding to is a hybrid approach where you do have a way of building up that net worth and simultaneously allocating that net worth, I think is the way to get that knowing that you're going to be okay type of situation through diversification, but also getting that net worth to where you need it to be so that the investments you can make are significant and can therefore provide cash flow to pay off your expenses. Perfect. So we've got another awesome question that Bart is just, he's just tossing bombs over the fence here. I'm excited about this one. You're going to love this one. So he believes passive investing is definitely something everyone should do at some point in their investing career. If the goal is financial freedom, then the rate of cash flow is key or the, the rate of income that you have, the rate of growth essentially is key. And it makes sense. You have to get there somehow. So he's saying active investing gets paid five ways, appreciation, cash flow, loan pay down, tax benefits, and inflation profiting or, you know, right, really an inflation hedging in a way. How are passive investors getting paid other than cash flow? And I'm sure you've got answers for this. Well, one thing that I think creates a lot of questions, and I'll, I'll definitely address your question. Hopefully, if I don't, you can kind of clarify. So oh, sure. I get a lot of questions about the fact that, oh, I don't like to invest in passive deals, or I don't like to invest in funds because I don't get one of the benefits of investing in real estate, which is the depreciation. And this is a bit of a misconception. So operators, and including companies that are positioned such as myself, we have the ability to pass through depreciation to our investors, just as if owning a property. So you own, in our deals, for example, you own interest in LLC and you own the proceeds of that LLC proportional to your investment amount. So if that LLC owns a property and there is $10,000 of depreciation that comes through to that property, we pass that depreciation onto investors proportional to their ownership of the LLC. So that's another way you can get paid. Now, that's usually not that significant in the risk profile and the asset classes that we look at. We usually get a net negative K-1, but it's not something to write home about. It's basically just enough to defer paying taxes for that year's cash flow. But I just wanted to clear that up. And can you say it one more time? How else can passive investors get paid as opposed to just cash flow and appreciation? Sure. So the active investing examples are appreciation, oh, cash flow, loan pay down, tax benefits, and inflation-related hedging. 
So how are yeah. passive investors getting paid other than cash flow? And you've identified the, a way they get paid by depreciation. So you can exactly. quantify that as a, a tax benefit. There are other tax benefits as well. What about appreciation, loan pay down, inflation hedging? Basically, kind of my reference to that with depreciation is that it's a private transaction. So you and the sponsor you invest with, they can pass through all of the benefits if they see fit. And it's the industry standard to do that. So what I mean is that it's the industry standard to pass through appreciation. It's the industry standard to pass through depreciation. Now, I'm not trying to get down into the weeds because this is what I do professionally, but I will say that if there is a sponsor out there that said this particular deal, the sponsor is going to keep 100% of the depreciation, that would just be up to the sponsor to make that call. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't read your documents, but that would be not within market dynamics, basically. It would be standard to pass through every one of those benefits. Absolutely. The market's found a lot of equilibria with what investors will accept and what sponsors can offer in terms of either equity splits or projected returns to investors or what have you. Those are all very detailed and case dependent and all that kind of stuff. But investors are always looking out for their benefit. And then on the other side, that's why we always that sponsors ahead of time. And before I even look at the package, I want to know, do I like the sponsor before I even consider the deal? So Totally. I mean, yeah. we basically aren't working with new sponsors, just given what's going on in the economy and our relationships that we've already built up. So if I have a company that I've worked with for three years that has a tremendous track record prior to us even meeting, and there's another company which is a comparable, I would go with the company that have already built a track record with nine times out of 10. And so given that we've been fortunate in the timing of when we started the business and the fact that there was a lack of liquidity in there and the fact that we could write large checks, we were able to build some amazing relationships at a time when people really needed capital. So while we do have a extensive due diligence process, which is really focused on the sponsor, at this point, it's really refacilitating those original relationships that we curated eight years ago. Absolutely. So another one I, I think that we need to specifically address because the question was a little bit pointed toward single family investing, which is totally fine. But what, what you and I do is commercial. So he mentioned appreciation and the deals that you and I do were we're doing forced value add appreciation. It's not the same way that you get appreciation in a single family investment. I'm sure I, I don't doubt that you would characterize it that way. But would you care to add your position on that and then expand as you see fit? I think one of my favorite examples of this is particularly in the self-storage business. There are tens of thousands of self-storage facilities in the United States that do not have any kind of relationship with a truck rental company whatsoever. And so we can buy properties based on in-place income. And then the day after close, call our contact at U-Haul, have them park 15 trucks on our facility that they own, and then rent those trucks out to tenants as they move in and out and get a commission from U-Haul for facilitating the transaction. Now I say we, I mean in conjunction with the sponsor because I'm not directly interfacing with U-Haul, but I have personally invested in deals where that one line item has gone from $0 a month to $3,500 a month, directly to the bottom line. I mean, it just wasn't a strategy, they weren't implementing it, now they are. So if you multiply that by 12 on a monthly basis and then divide it by a seven cap or so to be conservative, We're talking about $600,000 of value added to the property by just implementing the strategy. Now, the name of my company, ASIM Capital, is short for asymmetric. 
And when I look at things on a risk-adjusted basis, I'm not talking about expanding the facility. I'm not talking about taking a C-class property, turning it into an A-class property. Those are fine strategies. Generally, you'll get a symmetric return for the risk you're taking on. But buying a property and just implementing that uh, that management strategy of having that relationship with U-Haul, there's no capital expenditure. It's just a matter of calling them up. And so those are the types of deals that produce that asymmetric return. Now, we do invest in both, you know, converting units and expanding properties, but you really get that bump in terms of the, the outsized returns by implementing strategies, particularly as it relates to management strategies, which is why I like those complicated asset classes. There's more of them to do. Absolutely. And the, and the important thing to take away there, the difference between commercial and residential real estate, and this is in commercial, including large-scale multifamily, is that the value of the property is going to be a calculation based on the net operating income. How much, how many dollars are you bringing in at the end of the year, not counting debt, not counting your, your mortgage versus the market capitalization rate? So you used a 7% cap in that case. So for every dollar that the sponsor adds to the net operating income, that gets capitalized into the value of the property. And that's where you're talking about that asymmetric return. We add a dollar to the bottom line, but we add significantly more to the value of the property based on the, the market cap. So that's a big advantage of commercial real estate in terms of the forced nature of appreciation. That's a big strategy going on right now. Yeah, absolutely. Another one I'd like to add, just because it's a deal that I'm, I put in my self-directed IRA, another example, sponsor came back and told us, you know, within the first month or two, there were many units that were renting for maybe 20 bucks a month at a self-storage property, but the market rents were somewhere around 60 a month. And those were just those $20 a month people were somebody that got a move-in special. And because the original owners were man, not as savvy, I don't know. I don't want to judge. They never brought the people up to, they never brought that particular tenant up to the market rent of 60. So, yeah. okay, we go around, we normalize these rents. I mean, it's that's how it's done. And that's a huge opportunity that I see, particularly if we're talking about buying properties from potentially mom and pop operators, if we yeah. may. We've got another question here. You can answer this however you like. Uh, maybe, maybe it makes sense at this point to take the, the conversation offline, but what are the typical rates of return range for passive investing in a syndication deal? Somebody asked me that. I would say, I can't disclose that here. Talk offline about it, but you're welcome to answer how you see fit. Yeah. So, I mean, look, we all, every attorney is going to fight over me answering this, but I'll just say, generally speaking, what I found in the marketplace, this has nothing to do with our particular deals. I personally don't like getting out of bed unless I uh, feel it's reasonable to to achieve a, a low to mid-teens return. Um, so, and that's what's typical in the marketplace. So if you if you download 100 deals, they'll most likely be in that low to mid-teens range. But take it for what it is, right? Because Number one, everyone's marketing documents look exactly the same. You have to be extremely savvy to identify which one of those will actually perform, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so again, it's not about setting expectations. It's just really about that's the market dynamic today. Yeah, absolutely. And from my passive investing standpoint, I agree. I would add that a few comments that it's all projections and it's all math. We have to, you know, that's where vetting, again, back to vetting the sponsor. If it's not an experienced sponsor, then I don't know, their projection of a mid-teens return, that could be completely made up. I don't know what they're qualified to really make that projection into the future. And then um, another oh, totally. point on yeah, that. Other than the spectrum, you can be like, oh, 
this is a development deal. And the fact that it's in the low teens is that's completely also outside of market dynamics, not because they're being aggressive, but because something weird's going on where you're taking all the risk of development and not achieving something higher than the low teens. So you have to be able to review deals, um, which is one of the great things about what's happened since the Jobs Act, which is that you can. Now, the problem, though, is just because you have access to them doesn't mean that the education is there. And that's what, you know, you and I are doing. I feel like we're both in this business to help people educate, uh, educate themselves to protect their principal. Because if not, then we're just basically riding another wave of what happened in the stock market back in 2000. Right. And so we don't want to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And this business is a lot of fun, too. So <laughs> real estate true. investing for fun and profit. Yeah. Another thing I would add, at least. From the multifamily world, and you know, you being in self-storage, you can let me know what you think about this. But in the multifamily world, there's a lot of new or even moderately experienced sponsors that say that their underwriting is conservative. Well, we do conservative underwriting, but everybody says their their underwriting is conservative. I mean, that's that's it's a buzzword at this point. What's your opinion on that from a passive? Oh man, I mean, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I, I, this is no, something that no obviously I built my career on. Right. Because this is when it comes to the sponsor, every piece of our due diligence process, which starts at the sponsor and end at the legal documents, there's seven stages there. Every single question I ask is really focused on who am I making bet on and are they putting themselves in a position to deliver for their investors over the long term? So when it comes to underwriting standards, it's the exact same. One thing that I would say will paint a very clear picture is if you can get the trailing 12 month financials and then look at the year one projections and then identify the major changes between the two and ask the sponsor to justify those changes, you'll get a very good sense of who you're dealing with. So a perfect example is if the operating expense ratio is supposed to go from 62, which is what I mentioned earlier, to 48, that is a massive, massive difference, right? That doesn't mean the sponsor is being aggressive. It just means they need to justify it. Now, a really good answer would be, well, the reason we can justify this is that rents are a little bit out of whack. We have a property three miles away, which has a 48% operating expense ratio, and it's the same vintage. Things like that start to build that case to make that very compelling. What you wouldn't want to hear is, well, the person at Keller Williams told me that this is what it would be like. No disrespect to Keller Williams. It's just that their reputation in the business isn't to have accurate operating expense ratios. That's not their area of expertise. Again, no disrespect. Just that's the reality of the situation. Well, you're Irrespective um, of the brokerage, the broker told me. Oh, yeah. Not a good answer. That's, thank you for that. Thank you for clarifying. That's exactly right. So you want to have a market clear understanding of market dynamics. If they have subject properties, which are relatively comparable, that's great. Competitive assets, which they have some insight into, those are great answers. And so that's when the case becomes clear. And I just want to clarify, just because there's a big difference doesn't mean it's not appropriate. It just means that that's what you should definitely focus your due diligence efforts on. Absolutely. We're rapidly running out of time. I got three rapid fire questions for you. First one, what is the best investment you ever made? Well, I'm going to kind of, I don't want to hedge and then talk. There was a self-storage deal that I would always answer and just say this is exactly right. And it was an incredible deal and it did yield a credible return. And I have to be honest though and be transparent. We just got an email confirming that I think that that has now been replaced. And when I look at things on a risk-adjusted basis, we brought a property in a Texas market that was just completely under rent, and they were just overpaying on everything. Everything from water to pet services to trash removal, everything was just way out of whack from an absentee owner. And we just got 
the returns back and it's just ridiculous. And I say ridiculous as in not replicatable over the next 10 years because market dynamics would have to shift so drastically that it wouldn't make sense mathematically for them to be able to do so. However, that's not luck. In the case of this sponsor, it's a result of them identifying the opportunity, identifying the market, identifying the team and being able to execute on the business plan flawlessly. Just in case your listeners are interested, and this is not a clickbait and this is not its expectations, but 39% IRR on a relatively stabilized multifamily property, which is crazy. That's net to investors. I mean, completely ridiculous. And again, I say ridiculous in the sense of it's mathematically impossible to have another 300 point cap rate compression over the next five years. But did it happen? Yes. Am I happy? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit of a white whale type of type of thing. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. but hey, I'm going to have to be honest about that's probably it. <laughs> Take your wins where you can get them and celebrate them. Love it. What about right. on the other side of that? What is the worst investment you ever made? Okay. So again, I'll be transparent about this. After I had some success in the business, I wanted to own real estate myself so I could control the time horizon. Okay. And the easiest way for me to do this was to own single family properties early in my career before I really understood the benefits of syndications. I'm sure everyone listening to this has probably gotten a deal that says you can buy houses in Jackson, Mississippi for $30,000 a piece and you only have to put 33% down and you go three houses for a total of $33,000. That's amazing. I'll do it. And they also rent for 2% of what they purchased, right? So $600 a month for rent and you can buy them for $30,000. Well, I don't even need to go into details because we all know how the story ends, right? So you sell them for $60,000 after you bought them for a hundred and that's the worst investment I ever made. Part of the reason for that, by the way, is because the, the smaller uh, the purchase price and the smaller the gross dollars are, it doesn't matter what the return is. If you're getting $3,000 in cash flow and you have to go to the asset once and it costs you $1,000 to go, you're not in a good spot. Furthermore, maybe even more importantly, you have a property manager who stands to gain somewhere in the range of $50 a month to $100 a month. So are they incentivized to actually keep the property rented or are they incentivized to say, you're never going to believe this, but another air conditioning machine broke. It's going to be $350. And so they just nickel and dime you until you eventually quit. Now, I know there is a lot of people that have made millions investing in single family houses, but I just continue to find that my personality suits best with dealing with people that stand to gain millions on each property. Absolutely. You know, I, I find a lot of those folks that have made millions investing in single families, they're, for the most part, they don't seem to be starting with way out of state, low dollar figure type of mm -hmm. single family houses type of thing. They're maybe buying in their own market. They're buying over a longer period. They're, and they're developing that a very high level of sophistication by being in the business, working you know, in the business and on the business at the same time. And then you know, they'll start branching out into other markets so that they would, again, they would have the savvy to see those three houses for $33,000 and say, I'm not going to do that deal type of thing. Or, you know, so that seems to be totally. my observation based on those folks that have been successful in single families. They tend to have a very long time horizon. They're very savvy operators, great business people. So I don't know. I, you know, I know lots of people who have been successful in that regards. I can't talk too bad about it, but it's not for me. I'm not a single family no, guy. No interest. Totally. And I think to your point, 
there's so many people that have made millions, but there's also a larger sample size because most people have been most familiar with investing in single family houses. I think that maybe something that's very telling is there's very few people that say, I started in commercial, it wasn't for me, now I only do single family. You frequently see the other end, right? That doesn't paint the whole picture, but it's at least it's an important data point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would be surprised if anybody went the other direction from commercial to single families. seems to be entirely coming the other way, but I mean, you never know. I'm sure there's somebody now that you pointed out. Keep my ears open for that. My favorite question I ask here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in investing? I'll shift gears a little bit. I've had the opportunity to interview 100 people on my show. All of them are extremely successful. And the thing that stuck, I mean, I have really been very fortunate in the sense that I've interviewed some people I have a lot of respect for. The thing that stuck to me the most was a conversation I had about building relationships with successful, influential, high-profile people, how to go about that. And with anything, it's all about your network, but you want to attract the right people. You want to attract someone who's an ultra-high performer that will basically mentor you for free. And I have found the snowball gets going very, very quickly. There's a, a formula, basically, a, a really high demand of excellence, constant curiosity, and a sense of urgency for accomplishing your goals. And that's what you have. And that's what got you to where you are. And that's what I have. That's what got the relationship that I have gotten. And anytime someone shows me those characteristics, two things simultaneously happen. Number one, I want to be a facilitator for their success because I'm 100% confident that they will succeed. Number two, I don't want to compete against them in the back of my mind. So I want to be there to help formulate that so that when they write their book about their millions, I'll maybe include it as opposed to they come after me, right? So there you go. I like that Absolutely. sense of urgency. If you're just getting started, if you show those three things to people, the right people will be so drawn to help you. Absolutely. I love that. In this business, more so than anything else I've been involved with, you know, it is such a people business. People are very willing to help, not everybody, but the right people. If they see potential in you or they see something in the future, you know, you can really make some awesome connections and go a lot further, a lot faster by meeting the right people and, and getting out there and networking, all that good stuff. So it's been a great conversation today. Thanks for joining us. Where can listeners get in touch with you, the podcast, the ASIM Capital, you know, give us all of it. Sure. So you can find the podcast, Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast, Cashflow Connections, that's three words. And then the investment company is asimcapital.com. I mean, if you're interested in getting an ebook about the self-storage vehicle, just shoot me an email at info at asimcapital.com. I'll shoot you a bunch of free goodies and a bunch of content. Fantastic. I love it. Well, Thank you for joining us once again. Go check out his podcast. Uh, you know, it's a great podcast and you've been on many others as well. So, you know, go check out those, those appearances. I'm sure those are on your website and uh, everybody should go learn more about self-storage. I love it. It's a fantastic business. Great place to passively invest in, in real estate. Yeah. Big fan. So again, thank you for joining us and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thanks again, Taylor. 